0: 92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, Heart Health with Dr. Dennis Goodman, an integrative approach made easy, was recorded on May 2nd, 2019 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y.
1: So before I start, um, I want to tell you a story. Now, I I think you know, some of you, that I was uh, in San Diego for many years. I trained at in South Africa, I went to medical school in the University of Cape Town, and then I went to Pittsburgh where I did residency. And then I went to Baylor College of Medicine where I did cardiology. I'm lucky because I was with De as a cardiology fellow and I was a medical student at the time of Christian Barnard. So I had these great inspirational people as, as mentors and we all need mentors. So during the time that I was in San Diego and I was a cardiologist there and very busy, Um, I had a good friend, and he said to me, he's a pulmonologist, please will you see my father? He lives in Seattle. He's 80 years old, and he's having palpitations, and he's having chest pain, and he's seen all the doctors there, and nobody knows what's wrong. They're telling him there's nothing wrong with him, and he's getting more and more depressed, and I looked up and I said, where did he go? And he went to one of the major institutions there. And I said, listen, I'm very happy to see him. I'll talk to him on the phone. to bring him down here and, and ask me to go through everything. I know that it's, it's gonna be, there's nothing to find, but I'm happy to talk to him. Anyway, he insisted. And two weeks later, I opened the door to my office and there were about 15 people from this large Italian family that had come to, to, to see me. And I brought him back into my office and I examined him and he just looked so depressed. And I looked at his EKG, I looked at all these records, he had something called PVCs, and nothing suggested that he had structural heart disease. There was nothing to account for the fact that he's having these symptoms. And then he went back into my office, I brought the whole family back, and I said, you know what, and I actually said to him, do you feel depressed? And he said, no. Is there any reason that you could be feeling down? And he said, no. And I had the whole family in my office, the children, some cousins. We had to bring chairs into my office. And I said, you know what? I don't see anything that's structurally wrong with your father's heart. But I think he may have heartache because he looks sad to me. Is there anything that could be making him sad? And one of the daughters jumped up and said, Dr. Goodman, please, could you come outside? She took me out of my office and she said, my father has not seen his son for six months, my brother. They had a fight and my son has gone to Vegas and wants nothing to do with my father. And I think it's killing him. So I went back in the office and I said, you know, your daughter just told me something that completely makes sense to me. You have broken heart syndrome. And if you don't treat broken heart syndrome, you land up with structural heart disease. That's when you can come and see any cardiologist in Western medicine and you will be treated for something bad like a heart attack. And I said to the family and I said to him, there's only one treatment for this and that's to fix the relationship. So I suggest, and this is my doctor's prescription, that you don't go back to Seattle and you go straight from here to Vegas. I said, call your brother tonight and tell him that Dr. Goodman says if he wants to see his father alive again, he should see him and at least talk to him. And I said, if he says no, please tell me know because I'm going to call him. And two weeks later, they all left my office. I came to my office one day and there was this case of wine, but much more important was a note in his handwriting. <laughs> and I'll never forget the line. He said, Dear Dr. Goodman, thank you for giving me my life back. I've, I've mended the relationship. And even telling the story brings almost tears to my eyes because I wanted to tell you that story because some of you are going, what is integrative medicine? That's integrative medicine, and that's what it's always meant to me. That it's not about what you see sometimes, it's what's underneath. And it's what's causing people's pain. So much so that in my practice, I've learned that when people see me and I don't see a structural problem, I say, who is your headache? Or who is your chest pain? And I can tell you so many times, especially women, they start crying because they suddenly realize that if someone is giving them heartache and somebody in the family or some friend and I say now we can try to fix you the treatment is not Xanax and go and see another doctor and say Dr. Goodman doesn't think much my chest pains from my heart let me go see a pulmonologist, let me go and see a rheumatologist so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight so this, I am at NYU, I put the slides up with the NYU logo, I'm very proud of it, it's a great institution. We are blessed in the city to have major medical institutions with great doctors. And this is one, this is one of them and this is uh, a picture I'm not gonna go into of all the places that I've been along my journey, but now I'm at NYU in the preventative medicine p- program and I'm proud that there's actually an integrative medicine program and you're looking at the integrative medicine program right here, it's not that easy. <laughs> To find people that 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 swim in my or or or, or 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 in the boat with me, but I'm a big believer in it. So there is a big chasm between Eastern and Western medicine. There is a huge gap between traditional and non-traditional medicine, and it's a very very tough thing to bridge that gap. And I have dedicated myself over the last 10-15 years to trying to be a bridge. And I just want to say before I move on, Dan, stand up. Here is another physician. This is a physician who is an interventional radiologist, and he recently stopped doing interventional radiology because he wanted to be a bridge as well. And there are these bridges out there, and I'm honestly in search of them, and I'm trying to find them, and I know patients out there that seek them out. But when you're in the space where you actually are Western-trained like me and Dan, and then you kind of cross over, because you want to actually be available to patients on both sides, so that you're not offering them stuff that actually doesn't make sense. You can say, you know, in your case, you really don't need a surgeon, or you don't need an interventional cardiologist. We can treat you with acupuncture. It's a very fine line, and it's a tough tightrope. Because on both sides, there are people who are uncomfortable with you. I'm going to tell you another story. And I hope nobody listens to this podcast that's going to hurt me with a story, but I'm taking my chances. I one day noticed that one of the professors at NYU, who's in a department where I work, a very experienced, great, great guy, great cardiologist, very popular with the patients. He started being mean to me. And I would sit at meetings and I'd say something and then he would like roll his eyes and he would just kind of be dismissive. And then I said, oh, I wonder why he's doing that. I'm not used to that. I actually don't like it. And I went into his office and I said, Dr. Suns, and I closed the door, which is very anxiety provoking for somebody. Close the door. And I sat down and I said, Did I say something that might have upset you? because I can feel like there's tension, and I feel like you're upset with me about something. And he waited a few seconds, and then he looked at me and he said, all this magnesium stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that he didn't like it. That I was sitting at meetings and talking about how magnesium helps me, and how it helps so many of my patients. But the amazing thing is, the next day, he was warm again. And we're now friends. And I realized an important lesson, and I think Alice will agree with me. When you've got issues like this with somebody, whether it's your boss or your spouse or your partner or your friend, go and close the door and say, have I done something? Because when you communicate what you're feeling, you're so much better off than putting it in your head somewhere and letting it just build resentment and the relationship just goes south. So I told that story because I wanted you to know that as a cardiologist from the Western world at NYU as a professor there, and also trying to be in integrative medicine, where I go to the conferences as well, I'm always dancing between these two two worlds. And Dan will agree with me, it's very difficult because you have to be able to be knowledgeable in both for you to be respected. And that's the bridge that I'm trying to be. This is the days when I was an interventional cardiologist and I was putting stents in and going to people with acute MIs and sometimes you would save the patient, it was a great feeling but a lot of times the house burned down just like firemen have to deal with and I started to feel I'm like a fireman it's a great feeling when you save the people in the house or the house but what happens when people die? and I started to realize that to make a real difference You've got to take care of people and, get, and make your impact early on. How people prevent these things. You're always going to have people who want to put the stents in and bypass surgery. But I started to spend my time trying to think about how I can make a greater impact and talk to people about prevention. And what can you do so you never have to have your house on fire? So we have in Western medicine a disease model. Dis-ease. That's what you taught from the time you go to medical school. And you taught that, that as a result of these symptoms that you have, we put together these symptoms and sometimes the signs, and we say, oh, you've got a disease? And we diagnose something. And then we're happy because we can put you in a box and say, that's what you've got. And now you get these medications. You take out your prescription pad. And that's how we taught and that's what we think is a really good doctor because he knows how to make the diagnosis and he knows how to treat it with the right medication. But in fact, let me find this. To me, we've landed up in a situation, please go home and Google this poem, but it's written by a man called John Godfrey Sachs and it goes like this. It was six men of Hindustan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, ho, what have we here, so very round, smooth, and sharp? To me it is mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. And each one of these six men from Indistan felt a part of the elephant, and none of them saw the elephant. And we've reached a time now where in medicine, in Western medicine, each person is looking through the eyes of their specialty. To the point these days, and I'm not being critical, but it's hard to go and see an orthopedic surgeon and not get an MRI. It's very hard to go and see a gastroenterologist and not get endoscopy both ways. It's hard to go to a cardiologist and not get stress tested, ultrasounds, echocardiograms. Thank you. So not to say you don't need them. Of course you do at times, but everybody's looking at a piece of the elephant. And the old days of having a family physician who looks at you as a whole, it's falling by the wayside. And there are many reasons for them, but mainly for that. But one of them is the system's broken. The medical system in the United States is in a tragic situation. We are the richest nation in the world. And you know where we actually land up being graded in terms of our healthcare grades? The last I looked was number 27. 20%, close to 20% of our GDP is spent on healthcare. That's about 3.7 trillion. And we have a tragic situation with so much money and the healthcare system is failing. And I hope to make the case tonight that it's because we're practicing too much like these six men of Hindustan and we're not getting to this. You can't just look at the tree. You've got to say, what's going on? What's happening? What's going on underneath this iceberg? These are underlying causes for a disease that we can diagnose. You can be really smart and diagnose the disease, but what about, you've got a history, sorry, you've got a diagnosis of high blood pressure, so you start somebody on a diuretic, which is a common first-line drug, And you make them deficient in potassium and magnesium. And in fact, the cause of the high blood pressure was low magnesium. And so I'm a big believer, and this is what I teach my students, let's look at why in every situation and see if you can find an underlying cause, just like the patient when I told you the story. Because that's so much better than putting somebody on medications for PVCs. And that's what functional integrative medicine is, looking at stress response, nutritional deficiencies, mitochondrial dysfunction, hormonal imbalances. But it's hard. It's a whole new field. There's a whole world of functional and integrative medicine. That's not what the students and medical students in Western medicine are taught. How are they supposed to know? If If no one's teaching them, and I am making a big push that we should be teaching, and I have one lecture a year that I give the medical students on integrative medicine, just to try to tell them, more or less the lecture you're getting tonight, you've got to think out the box. This is a slide from, and it was published in Nature, and this is part of one of the sad situations we were in, where when people are treated for diseases, these blue people are the number of people helped by the medication. So look at the 10 biggest, most popular drugs, Abilify, Nexium, Humira, Crestor, Bolta. Look at the numbers that are getting treated. No benefit. And unfortunately, sometimes, side effects. And how does this occur that these drugs that are in the top 10 get approved if, in this case, you're getting benefit in one out of 20. And I don't want you to try to remember this formula, but I just want to explain something to you called relative risk reduction. This is how research is performed. So let me give you this example over here. If you're looking at a new drug, and you're looking to see how many people died on this new drug versus those people who never got the drug, and this is the placebo, so it's a sugar pill, And two people, of the hundred people that you gave the pill, died getting the sugar pill. And one person died with the new drug. Well, when you actually go 2 minus 1 over 2, you get a 50% reduction in risk. A 50% reduction is a big number. If you've got enough patients in the study, that's a big number and it's likely to get approved because we like big reductions in relative risk. But what's the absolute risk reduction? It's 1%. You've got to treat 100 patients to save one. Now, you could make a case, and we have something called NNT, number needed to treat, and maybe that's acceptable. But when you talk about putting people at risk from side effects, And we're not talking about saving a life where you have to have a question mark, because if it's your life, it's worth it. But when you're talking about treating a condition, and a hundred people have to get a drug for two of them to feel better, or get better, or have benefit. So I want you to just be aware. This is why we have a situation where, and this is tongue-in-cheek, you take metformin for diabetes caused by this. I take for high blood pressure, which I got from it. These drugs all have side effects. And we land up treating side effects with new drugs and other drugs. And I don't have to tell you in the elderly population like my mother was on 12, 14 pills. I'm constantly trying to get her off them. I want to just stop them all. Because every time you go to the doctor and they add another one, because now you see the The stomach doctor puts on this, and then this one puts on that, and we land up with someone who's taking polypharmacy. I don't even know what's happening. And many times in my practice, some of my most memorable, pleasurable moments is when I took somebody off 10 drugs and 12 drugs. They came in, they said, I never felt better. This is not to say that you don't need drugs. There are times and many times that you need medication. I'm making a case for the fact that these drugs can cause harm, and there's huge amount of data out there. It turns out, they say, and it's written, that the third leading cause of death in the United States is what we call iatrogenic. It's related to procedures or futile care or something that happened in the hospital. We don't, it's hard to judge that because things happen. People have got a disease process, but the fact is there are many, many, many situations where because of something that you did, To someone who it was a borderline situation, or maybe they didn't need it, you can actually have a fatality. So we're now in a stage in medicine where we're trying to say, we're not going by the study where maybe one or two people got better out of a hundred. What is right for you? This is the new world of medicine. We're trying to personalize it, we're trying to say, what is it about you? that you should be on that medication, or should not. And I'm going to show you as we progress through this talk that we have new tools today in medicine that actually can help us to personalize each person so that they can get the right treatment. So this is integrative cardiology. This is something that I speak to every patient about, and that's nutrition, exercise, that's stress management, and sleeping. It's so important. We all know how important it is to eat properly, and we know how important it is to exercise. This is crucial, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Every single person needs to be thinking, am I getting enough sleep, and is my quality of sleep good enough? Because we're realizing now that when your quality of sleep isn't good, you're not going to be well. And let me throw this something out there. There's another one of my favorite quotes. Wellness is not the absence of disease. When you go to the doctor, he says, there is nothing wrong with your heart. Or I don't find anything wrong on all the blood tests and tests you've had. So why do I feel so bad? Because you're not well. And we have a hard time in Western medicine trying to figure out what not well means. And a lot of times, and we'll talk about that in a minute, not well's got to do with, Emotional stuff, what's going on in your head, and we had a chat about this recently, Dan and I. If your emotions and your feelings and your passions and your goals are not lined up, you're going to be unwell. So, to give you an example, if you're in a job that you hate and you're miserable and you're just trying to get through the day and you're sitting with a big, you know, all day long, but you, in your heart, your goal is to be promoted so that you can be the boss. It ain't happening. You will never get that job. You've got to say, if that's what I want, if that really is important to me, I've got to change my attitude, because that's where I want to go. So if I come in smiling, and I to my boss that I love this job, and I look really enjoy this, and this is my passion, that's when you've got a chance of progressing. But if it's not your passion, and I've had many patients over many years where we have these conversations, I go, try, try to find your passion. Because when you're in a job where it's not your passion, where you're in relationships where they're not, they're not connecting you to your passions, it's much, much harder. So we know that stress, everybody's got stress. It turns out, That 80% of doctor visits are related to stress. It turns out that heart attacks and strokes, 80% of them can be prevented with lifestyle changes. And a big part of that is stress management. So this is a study and it makes sense. They looked at people that had a heart attack and they said, what happened in the two hours before the heart attack? It turns out you increased your chance of a heart attack by 230% when you're angry and you're stressed. And many, many times I was in the emergency room and people would admit to me they'd just been in a terrible fight with someone in the family. And your blood pressure goes up, you're stressed and you get plaque rupture. And I'll show you what that is in a minute. So there's so many books out there about stress management. I actually read a lot of these, and uh, why do we read these books, because we're trying to help ourselves, and that's why they're called self-help books. Now, there is a book I'm going to recommend to you. I found this book incredibly helpful, because how we communicate with people is one of the most important ways to manage stress, and this book is called Nonviolent Communication by... Marshall Rosenberg and he talks about how you get your message across and I found it incredible and I don't have to we've got psychologists in this room I'm not going to go into the details but it's a definite book worth reading and this is from the Reebok study look at this 29% of our lives we're sitting down. 41% we're engaging in technology. The average human spends less than 1% of their time exercising. Look at all these statistics. And then you've got at least a third of your life sleeping. I was out the other day at a restaurant, and this family came, and there were four adults and six kids. Everybody was on their phone. Nobody was talking to each other. I couldn't believe it. I actually wanted to take a picture, but it's a little embarrassing. Hey, can I get a picture of you all? Stay on your phones. So these are classical risk factors for heart disease. And I'm not going through them, but this is what we all know. The age, the sex, the race, the cholesterol, the diabetes, hypertension, smoker, and being on a statin. And there is something called a risk calculator, which you can download. It's, f- it's worth doing. It's called the ASCVD risk calculator. You can plug in your age and your cholesterol, and your blood pressure. It'll tell you what your 10-year risk is. What is the risk compared to other people of having a heart attack? And it's helpful for people because if you've got no idea, and you're sitting with a risk above 10 percent and basically above seven and a half, you're at increased risk. If your risk is above 20 percent, you're at significant. That means you've got a one in five chance over the next 10 years of having a heart attack or a stroke. And that is very, very important, to know that, because you should see a doctor, ASAP. Everybody should be a doctor, but you should know what your risks are, and that's a help. I want to explain something to you in cardiology. This is an artery. As you get older, people start to develop plaques. These plaques, which are basically like cheese, it's called atherosclerosis. It's related somewhat to cholesterol. Not altogether, but that's a component. It's related to inflammation. It's related to your genetics It's related to the fact whether you smoke or not These things damage the wall And I give this as an example to patients When we're trying to explain How does cholesterol and LDL impact the artery I tell people think of a tennis net And when you throw tennis balls against a tennis net They don't go through Or you're playing tennis But what when when you've got marbles Or you've got golf balls or there's holes in the net. When you smoke, and when you've got uncontrolled hypertension, and when you have diabetes, the net is damaged. And that means that LDL can get inside and start to cause atherosclerosis. If you have tiny, small particles, LDL particles, that's why we measure them, they're more likely to get into the, into the wall. So we have tests where we can tell whether you've got small particles, small dense particles. Small dense particles are found in diabetics, and that's one of the reasons that they have a high incidence of cardiovascular disease. So let me just show you what happens. As, you, as atherosclerosis progresses, you end up getting a blockage. And when it gets to 70% or more, then you start having symptoms. That's when people get exertional chest pain or shortness of breath. So, think about it, you can have atherosclerosis, until that artery gets to 70% blocked, you're not going to be symptomatic. Because you don't know you've got blockages, until you get to 70%, you're not going to know. And in fact, that's why when people have stress tests, and they say everything's fine, actually it doesn't mean everything's fine. When you have a regular stress test that you pass, or a stress echo, or a nuclear stress test, because you could have a 60% blockage that won't show up, and it could be diffused. So stress testing is very helpful to determine whether there's a blockage above 70% or, what you, or whether your chest pain is due to your heart, a, a heart blockage. But heart attacks don't really occur like that. Heart attacks don't care because it goes from 60, 70, 80, 90. Heart attacks occur because you get plaque rupture. You see this here, this is the inside of the artery. This is a 30% narrowing. This would never be detected on a stress test. But when a person's stressed, or sometimes it's just spontaneous plaque rupture, the contents of this lipid core, which is usually basically a lip it's it's lipid, it's cholesterol plaque, it gets in contact with blood and you get this blood clot. And it blocks the artery, it goes from 30% to 100%. This is when people die suddenly and they had no symptoms before. So there's a unfortunate sad fact in cardiology that of all the people who die suddenly of a heart attack it's their first and last symptom. It's their first and last symptom and that's why it's so important to know your risk factors and to be checked out and try to avoid these things that could cause plaque rupture. So it's really really important that people understand that just having a negative stress test, that means you passed your stress test, does not mean you're not at risk. Why? Because the arteries that rupture, the the blockages that rupture, more than two-thirds of them are less than 50%. So when people have plaque rupture, it's not an artery that's 90% blocked where you're likely to have symptoms. It's an artery that's less than 50% blocked, and this rupture occurs. So what am I saying to you is, you should know whether or not you've got plaques. If you really want to know if you're healthy. If you really want to know, do I have cardiovascular disease? So this is called coronary screening. And this was in Time magazine many, many years ago. And it's taken a while for us to kind of now start putting it into Western medicine and being part of the guidelines. But this is what I do in my practice. And I like to say, here are your risk factors. Now we're not talking 20, 30 year olds, but anybody over 40 or 50, especially if they've got risk factors. This is called a calcium scan. This is a CT scan that takes about 3 minutes, 2, 3 minutes, and we can see if there's plaque in the artery. And we get a number and we can compare it to what the average would be for that person. So if you've got a high score, above 400, I did a consultation today and the score was 537. That person is now in the 95th percentile. That means there are only 5% of people worse than them. Asymptomatic. This is a 57-year-old man with a father who had a heart attack at 50. I said, you need a stress test. Because I want to see if you've got a blockage above 70%, which occurs in 25 to 30% of people. I also want to make sure that we treat you aggressively. Because now you know you've got a lot of plaque. An aggressive treatment for plaque is lifestyle modification and treating the things that we know contribute to plaque. High blood pressure, diabetes, definitely not smoking, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, being overweight, not exercising, and there's another big one. Anybody know what I left out? Stress. And that's why I talk to everybody about stress. And that's why the psychologists are so busy. So there, there is something called the autonomic nervous system. And when people are stressed, there's two ways you can be stressed, acutely stressed or chronically stressed. And we lived at a time in the old days where acute stress was very important. Because if there was some wild animal near your campsite, You had to get this surge of catecholamines because what happens is your heart rate goes up, your heart starts pumping, you feel energized, your pupils dilate because you've got to go and do something. And that's called the acute stress response. Start sweating. And you've seen people when they have the acute stress response even when they're in daily life like in traffic jams. But what's happened today is that people are stressed chronically and so they've got a fast heart rate and their blood pressure's up, and they're getting insulin resistance, and they're not feeling good, because what's happening is the catecholamine levels are up all the time. You're not giving yourself a chance to come down to normal. And the system that regulates being normal is this system called the parasympathetic. This is your friend, the parasympathetic nervous system. You have to, have to pay attention to that. It's inside your system, and you have to feed and nurture it. It reduces your heart rate, it lowers your blood pressure, it promotes relaxation. What are the things that do this? Why do you think these athletes that are exercising all the time have got heart rates in 30s and 40s? Because they've got a strong parasympathetic system. Why do you think they're so happy? They've got these endorphins, their parasympathetic nervous system's kicked in, and they don't have a lot of this. So it's really important, and the other thing that's really good for the parasympathetic nervous system is doing things that are good for you, like listening to music, like doing yoga, like doing uh, any kind of stress management, like seeing if you need to see a psychologist, but something that takes down your adrenaline levels. I want to tell you another quick story. This man, whose name is Ruben Klamer, and I got his permission to show his picture and talk to you, is a patient of mine when I was in San Diego. At the time he was 82. And he invented a game called the game of life. Incredible guy, we became friends. And he'd had bypass surgeries 10 years before he saw me, in his 70s. And then he came to see me and I heard this loud heart murmur. And I knew that he had a heart valve problem. And what he had was a blockage of his aortic valve, and he had something called aortic stenosis. That means the blood can't get out of the heart. And as it gets worse and worse, There's no drugs, there's no treatment, there's no acupuncture, there's nothing except surgery. And that's why I hate it when people poo-poo the medical system on the western side. We have life-saving procedures in western medicine. When you need your appendix out, and God forbid you had a cancer, and you've got aortic stenosis. We need to embrace the Western medicine for what it offers, but we also have to embrace the other side. And this is a case where we had a combination. Because what happened is the night before he, he agreed to the surgery, because it was going to be life-saving. He would have died in the next few months if he didn't do this valve, because he was now in heart failure. But at 10.30 the night before his surgery, his caretaker called me. Her name is Bea, and she said, he is so anxious he thinks he's going to die, and he doesn't want to have the surgery, and I must please cancel it. Now, I'm, I want to ask you this question. You know, I'm a physician. I'm, on, I'm covering it's my patient. What do I say? We'll talk in the morning and leave him the whole night sitting there, not sleeping, coming to surgery agitated, and if he even goes for it. So I went to his house, to his apartment, and I saw him, and he said, I don't want to do this. I don't feel good. I I think I'm going to die. So I sat with him. I said, listen, I'm not sending you to surgery if you think you're going to die. I learned in my many years in practice that if somebody says I'm not going to make it, I will never send them for the procedure. I lost three patients in all the 35 years. And each one of them said to me, I'm not going to make it. So if anybody says, I don't want to do it because I'm not going to make it, unless it's, you know, a cardiac arrest and they've got no choice. You've got no choice but to act. I don't put people through those procedures. So I said to him, let's talk. You're not going to have it. I'll cancel it. We spoke and I spent an hour there. And I told him that if he doesn't have it, he's going to say goodbye in the next few months. And then he said to me, will you be there? I thought, oh my god, I've got a very busy day tomorrow. And I said, "I'll, I'll be in the operating room because I knew I just got to show up for a short time, but I'll say I'm going to be there. And you know what the next morning? He said, OK, it's going to do it. The next morning, we went into the pre-op area and that's his son who happened to be a singer. And I'm there and there he is. And we were singing songs for half an hour. And I wanted to play it here tonight, but there's some, there's some rules about, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, about, yeah, yeah, copyright. I wanted to play the song we sang and it's called King of the Road. We sang King of the Road so many times. And he went to surgery and he had his valve done and he did beautifully. And two weeks later when he was in my office, he said to me, I have to tell you something, Dr. Goodman. He said, I went into surgery and I felt like I was on, in the hands of angels. I felt I was being taken care of by god's angels i had no fear i had no anxiety and you know that moment was another one of those moments where you go this is the combination of western and eastern medicine because what do we know that music therapy and singing and we kicked his parasympathetic nervous system into gear and he went into the surgery not feeling stressed and here he is 12 years later that by the way two years later a few, he, got, he got into the toy industry of Hall of Fame, and there I was as his guest. And two years ago, he came to New York. And he said, please come visit me. And I went to visit him in his hotel room. He's 94. So this is 12 years after his surgery. And we sang King of the Road. <laughs> so there's studies, and there are many studies that now show that when you do guided imagery, or you do what we did, sing songs, you just get people's adrenaline levels down. They're gonna do better. And look at the study. The length of stay was reduced by two, by, by two days. There's less pain, there's less anxiety. And so we have now at NYU an integrative medicine program where we, you just have to make a phone call. Any of, the, any, any of the physicians or nurses on the team, we call and we send somebody and they come and they sit with somebody and we do some form of guided imagery. Whatever they wanna do. They can sing, we can do non-healing touch, we can play music and we found that to be so helpful. So these are benefits of biofeedback, meditation, yoga, tai chi, guided imagery, improved cardiovascular health, lower blood pressure, reduce chronic pain, decreased anxiety, enhanced mood, all techniques that, that basically stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. Here's someone doing yoga. So I love acupuncture too. I think it's got a real role. It's one of my favorite cartoons. That's odd, my neck suddenly feels better. But I found acupuncture incredibly helpful for people who have musculoskeletal pain. Really helpful. All these funny kinds of pains that we can't quite figure it out. Much better than having to take these anti-inflammatories chronically. And I know people who love their acupuncturists and they go there regularly. It's like a, a tonic. And I know people who say, you know what, that helps me with anxiety. And it helps my brain function. You know what, it's like these things that I wear, these copper bracelets. And people say to me, what are they? I say copperblast. Do they help? I say, do you know what? Do you know what's most important? They do help. But you have to want them to. You have to believe it. So if you believe you're going to get relief from a procedure like acupuncture, you will probably get relief. But if you go there and say this is a waste of time, your sympathetic nervous system kicks in, and there's no chance that your parasympathetic can get any benefit. So this is a study which is so powerful, which basically showed that after a heart attack, this was a study with all these patients, people who are very depressed, and you see them in the black here, who had social support, and here is people with low social support and high social support. There was a 500% reduction in cardiac death rate over the next one year in people that had social support. That means family members, people care about them. They're not sitting by themselves. They're not feeling depressed. And so caring for strangers, being able to go to people that don't have family, whether it's the nursing home Mm -hmm. or your whatever it is, your church, your synagogue, your mosque, whatever it is, and you go, can I go visit somebody that's just had surgery, that's got no family, you honestly and truly can be saving their life. Not having social support is one of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease and it makes complete sense because, you know what, when people feel no one cares. I had one patient, sorry to tell you all these stories but they're just jumping into my mind. I had one patient that was in his 60s and he was divorced, he had nobody. And he came to see me one day and I heard this loud noise in his neck. And then we followed it for a while, then he started having symptoms, and he had a 99% blockage in his carotid artery. And I said, you know what, you've got no choice. It's another one of those things, there's no medicine. He was on his aspirin. I said, you have to have surgery. And I sent him to the best surgeon, cardiovascular surgeon, at Scripps at the time. But he didn't have the best personality. He had the best hands. And I went to see him in the hospital a few hours before surgery, just to wish him well, and he was a wreck, and he was having, honestly, an acute panic attack. And he said, I don't want to have it. I'm going to have a stroke. I'm not having it. I said, what happened? The surgeon had just been by and told him, look, we're going to do your surgery, but I want you to know you could have a stroke. Well, the whole point of going to surgery is because you're trying to avoid that. Is that what you want to hear five minutes before? And I had to explain to him, that's what we have to do. We have to tell people what are, the, what, are the, what are the risks. But I don't understand why you can't say, you know there are risks, you're aware of them. You know, I don't want to think about them, but we're going to make you well and you're going to be fine. And you've got a very low risk of having anything bad happen. I could see he was very anxious and he was very uncomfortable. And I got to the door and I said, you're gonna be okay. Don't worry about what he said. He's got the best hands. I wouldn't have sent you to anybody but the best. And I don't know why I looked at him and I saw his loneliness. And I stood at the door and I said, don't forget I love you. And I'm telling you the story because again, two weeks later, he came to my office. He said, Dr. Goodman, I want to tell you what those words meant to me. He said to me, I got nobody. And I said to myself, if there's one person left in the world who still loves me, I want to live. So, you know, it's hard because I tell the story. But that is the power that we all have. This is not Dr. Goodman, the cardiologist. The nurse could have said that. The person cleaning the room could have said that. And so I am and have learned and tried to be a big believer in what we say, in paying attention to what people need. And what people need is somebody to care. Pets, this is what you get when you get a pet, you get somebody to care. And that's why people love dogs, and they love their cats, right? And this is one of my favorite little studies that I think is kind of more tongue-in-cheek than anything else. But they did a study, and they looked at pets and cardiovascular risk. And just look to the left over here, and what they said is this is your cardiovascular risk. So the blue is zero, one, and two, and three. This is children. More children, the greater your cardiovascular risk. That makes sense. But look at – and this is pets – When you've got no pets, look at your cardiovascular risk compared to when you've got pets. You can see that it's four times higher, five times higher. But this is what I find interestingly, and it's my proof, sorry to say, but dogs. Dogs are better. Okay, I know you're going to disagree, but here's the evidence. Here are dogs. This is your risk when you've got no dogs. This is your risk. When you've got one or two dogs and that's obviously compared to you know not having pets you can see the significant reduction in risk when you have dogs but look at cats yes you've got a reduction in risk but you get more than two cats your risk goes up (laughs) okay all right but this is actually from the american heart association they put out a statement that pet ownership is very very powerful but there's certain things. You don't just go by a pet and say, you know, I'm going to be much better. My risk's going down. You actually have to do something with that pet. So I have to ask you, what do you have to do? You've got to walk them. And you know what's so powerful about walking pets and mainly dogs? I haven't seen too many catwalkers, but there are. What is the most powerful thing about walking your dog? I can't believe it. And I know guys that tell me they've got a dog only to pick up women. Because when your dog goes and sniffs another dog, that is basically right. So what's your name, and how are you, and where did you take your dog to the vet? And it becomes an immediate connection. So pets are so powerful. I'm actually going to stop, and I'm going to be running through a lot of slides just at the end, but I would, because I want to point out one thing. This is many years ago when I realized, and I was in San Diego with a cardiologist, that people are taking supplements. And they're all taking a lot of supplements, and most Western doctors go, waste of time, expensive urine, waste of money. And you know that you would go to someone that was on the eastern side, or what I call non-traditional medicine, and they would give you a whole lot of supplements for a lot of money. Because they were comfortable selling supplements because they believed in them. So I went to the store and I said to this man, Brian, do you have something for the heart? He said, Absolutely. I said, Well, let's start with high cholesterol. It takes two things off the shelf. And then I went through. What if you got high blood pressure? Another two things. While I'm there, somebody came in and said, I got back pain. He took six stuff off, off, off the shelf, six different things, and the person put the money down and walked out. And I said to him, Wow, you know, I, I said, I'm a doctor. I can't get people to take stuff like this. Like how much training did you have that you've got this incredible influence? He said, yeah, we get a lot of training. I went to a six weeks course. and I learned about all the stuff in the store. And I said, I did 13 years. And I don't have people come in and say, I'm happy to take it. And I realized that we are missing the boat because there is something beneficial to some of these supplements. And we know nothing about it. So I went to read about it, and this is what I did. Oh, by the way, I was in Singapore, and this is another type of vitamin store. They have a completely different product. I went in there because I said, what do you have for headache? And I started asking around. This is what they treat people there. This is, a, this is a gecko. Now this gecko, apparently when you put it in hot water, it puts off a steam that treats asthma. And so would you rather sit like that? Or would you rather have steamed gecko inhaling it? Well, the problem is it depends on your culture. Because you can't give this to someone in America unless they're Asian. But for these people, maybe they saved themselves a trip to the hospital. You have to believe it, and it's just show there's so much that we don't know. And then there are people, and some of them are in this room, that understand that herbs are powerful, and they can do so many things. So this is what I came up with at the the time that I saw this guy in in the store. I said, why don't I make a supplement with things that are important for the cardiovascular system that cause the vessel to dilate, it stops blood clotting, it lowers cholesterol, and I came up with a multivitamin for the cardiovascular system. And we did a clinical study that I asked somebody else to do. And the actual HDL, the good cholesterol, went up 23%. And guess what? After thousands of hours, some nutraceutical company said, I love this. Let us take this product from you. We're going to market it. And then it became, and it's still out there, HDL booster. The problem is I could never talk about it. In all the years in practice, I mentioned it less than five times. Because when you're in Western medicine, and I'm seeing people who have low, low LDL, HDL cholesterol, and I go, do you want to take this product that may help you. Well, I invented it. You're done. And that's part of the tightrope. So there's a product, and so much so that I was at a conference once where Pfizer was there, and they were trying to push a new drug, Where they were trying to bring a new drug to market to raise HDL. They weren't happy to see this. So what I'm saying to you is, it's a thin line, and here's this product out there It's out there and you can get it, but you know who's selling it? The integrative medicine doctors, not the Western guys, because they'll go, what? You want us to use a product that you put together and you're going to get some kind of royalty from it? That's ridiculous. Snake oil. So, just to end off, I'm going to talk for five more minutes and then take questions. What supplements should you take? It's always better to eat a healthy diet. It's always better to eat the fruits and vegetables and get, your, get what you need like that. Much better than popping all these pills. But you know what? And that's what Hippocrates said. All disease begins in the gut. I'm going to not get into this because we don't have time. I was going to talk to you about the microbiome. Maybe Susan will have me back and we can talk about inflammation in the microbiome. We just don't have time, but look at this. The study links gut microbiome with ridiculously healthy aging. What we're eating and we're putting into our gut is so important in terms of inflammation. But this is something that takes me back to my roots. These are the big five. When you go on safari, look at these incredibly beautiful animals the lion, the rhino, the elephant, the leopard, and the buffalo. So I decided to come up with a big five to help my patients, what are supplements that are reasonable to take, especially if you're not getting a good healthy diet? And these are my big five. You take a multivitamin, you take vitamin D based on your levels, it's very important. You take magnesium, three milligrams per pound, that works to about, to about 400 milligrams for, per day for women and 500 for men, CoQ10 and a fish oil or a krill oil. So these are things that I think are reasonable and are very, very helpful, in my opinion. To the point that this is vitamin D. I'm not going to get into the details about it. Here's what you need to know about vitamin D. Maybe you can take a picture because I don't have time to go over it. But vitamin D is important. It's really important. And there's no excuse because you can check your vitamin D level. Just find out what your level is because if you're low in vitamin D, you've got increased risk for multiple things. This is what vitamin D, I'll just go back here for a second. These are things that we think vitamin D helps with. So, vitamin D should be taken when your levels are low. What's the optimal level? I like the level to be above 40. Above 40. So 45 to 55 is, is in my mind, a reasonably optimal level, and that's because there are tribes in Africa that run around with those levels and they're doing extremely well. Most people in a northeastern climate, their levels are well below 30, and I have most of my patients are deficient, and when I put them on vitamin D3, a lot of people feel better. This is magnesium, by the way, that's what you get when you eat leafy green vegetables. Magnesium is so important, the body doesn't make magnesium. There are 350 enzyme systems in the body that are dependent on magnesium. And so I wrote a book about it. What it does is converts ADP to ATP, which is an energy. It's your energy packet. It's like with not, you don't have gas in the car. It's like having diesel in your car instead of, in, instead of the right gas. You've got to have ADP going to ATP, and that's what magnesium does. These are all symptoms that you can have when you're magnesium deficient. Um, and he, oh, by the let me just read this and then I think I'm going to end this is an email and I get one or two almost every week and this is somebody that r- wrote to me last week he said I've been feeling really ill for months with increasing headache, lethargy, fatigue I've had every test under the sun including a brain scan they all came back normal I was feeling really bad, really awful probably the worst I ever felt anyway I landed up going to Australia about two weeks ago and somebody that knows him knows me, and he knew me from back in South Africa, I haven't seen him for many years, and he Googled Dennis, that's me, and he said I came across this book, Magnificent Magnesium. So having nothing to lose, I thought I'd try taking some magnesium supplements, and within about five days I was feeling an entirely different person and back to normal. The improvement continues, I'm amazed and extremely grateful for the serendipitous discovery I thought I had to let Dennis know and be grateful if you could pass this on. How good is that? So I want to send this email to my friend that I told you about at the beginning of this talk. Because he found magnesium by chance, and look at all the symptoms that he was having from magnesium deficiency. So one word about magnesium. You can check a magnesium level as well. So if you're not getting enough green leafy vegetables, you can ask your doctor to do an RBC magnesium, red blood cell magnesium, not a serum magnesium, because only 1% of the magnesium in the body is in the serum. You need an RBC magnesium, and it's not perfect, but it's better than serum, and you'll find out if you're deficient. I like to see the levels above 5.5. That's my book. I'm going to move on. Vitamin K2 is another one of my my favorite supplements. I'm not going to talk about it now. I am just want to go to this last thing here. Statins. What if you can't take statins? I see a whole lot of many patients over the years who can't take statins. They honestly are having side effects. They don't want it. And I found two things very helpful: bergamot and red yeast rice. Just something to you can come speak to me afterwards. Something to consider: red yeast rice is a statin. It's a natural. It's quote natural statin. It is a statin. It's a. It's basically. This is what Mevacor used to be, so it's a low dose of the type of statins we we get today, and for some people it works really well. The problem with this, it's not actually, because it's not regulated, sometimes you don't know exactly what you're getting, a lot of doctors don't like it, but I say that if you're getting it from a reputable nutraceutical company, which is another thing I want to say, if you're taking supplements, make sure you're taking them from the big five, and maybe there's big ten. Do you know there are 90,000 supplements on the market? So, this is, I took bergamot and my cholesterol came down 60 points. So, that's the kind of thing that can happen. This is sleep apnea. I'm not going into this, but I just want you to know look at all the, these are symptoms related to sleep apnea. These are all nasty things that can happen. If you're snoring, if you're tired during the day, if you don't think you're getting a good night's sleep, you should be screened. It's so easy. We have a thing called a watchpad. You can put it on your finger. It comes to your house, you put it on and you press a button and it records your oxygen levels throughout the night and it's an outstanding screening test of whether you have sleep apnea and it can be life saving to be treated for sleep apnea because it's obstruction in the throat area, so you're not getting enough oxygen to the brain. And the, the main treatments for sleep apnea are, number one, lose weight if you're overweight, number two, you can use a dental device if it's not that severe. You just get this, this dental device, pulls your jaw forward, and the third is sometimes you need CPAP, which is a machine to blow the air into your lungs. I'm ending off now on this last little note. I want to show you what, what's going to happen in the future. We're going to have cardiac genetic testing. We have already found out that when, no matter what your genes say, it's how they express what's important. And that's the whole topic of epigenetics. So eat less, exercise more, and invent a time machine so you can go back and choose your parents with better genetics. (laughs) Unfortunately, you can't do that. And this is another one of my favorites. You don't look anything like the long-haired skinny kid I married 25 years ago. I need a DNA sample to make sure it's still you. (laughs) I'm not going to do MTHFR now, but I am going to show you this study. This is a study that showed that people who yes, there, a, that people who had a high risk genetically for heart disease. So they've got genes. We can check the genes. They found out that when they actually did certain lifestyle changes, and here they were no smoking. Lose weight, regular physical activity, and a healthy diet. They reduce their cardiovascular risk by 50%. And what that means is that it's not about having bad genes, it's about them expressing themselves. And we can turn these genes on and off by your lifestyle behaviors. Here's a great book I want to recommend, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, by Kevin Pelletier, all about the field of epigenetics. How do you keep your genes that are bad suppressed, and how do you turn on the good ones? That's telomeres, I'm not gonna talk about that. I wanna just play this quick video. When (laughs) patients receive a
2: warning from their doctor about their medical risks and how to prevent them, they can be so overwhelmed with all the difficult changes they need to make, they usually just give up on even trying. Ideal Health, our AI-based data-driven app, helps individuals focus their efforts and supports them and their care providers into taking action. Using individualized medical data from the electronic medical records, one can visualize a personalized risk for multiple diseases and potential improvements by visualizing the effects of modifying risk factors. As opposed to other online calculators, our advanced causal inference algorithms help to demonstrate how the risk changes if the individual accomplishes different goals. With ideal health, individuals perceive that the risk is real and are empowered to best choose which goal to pursue according to their preferences. The patient's provider receives notification of their selected goal as well as action items to approve, like a prescription for medication, referral to lab tests or support groups, and follow-up visits. The referrals are automatically sent to the pharmacy, test labs, or support group, and notifications are included on the patient's calendar. Ideal Health helps the patient to better understand their medical situation and how to take action to improve it.
1: So this is the future. You have gotta be involved. We're gonna be using devices. You gotta know what your numbers are. You gotta know that what's gonna happen when you reduce this number and you can see it. It's right in front of you. This is my second last start. I'm gonna be done in four minutes. Do any of you know who this is? This is Rabbi Twersky, he's an amazing human being. He's an absolute expert on addictions. He's written many, many books. Rabbi Black's written 21 books. I don't don't think uh, Rabbi Twersky's written 21 books, but many books. And the question is, why did I show you a picture of Rabbi Twersky next to a lobster? Which is a very unusual thing to see. And the reason is that he gave a talk once, and he said, do you know that even lobsters have a time in their life when they're very vulnerable, even more vulnerable than usual? because they lose their shell and at that moment while they're growing a new exoskeleton, they are incredibly vulnerable to everything that's down there, not just humans. And he made the point that sometimes in life, when we really don't have our shell, when we're not protected, when we're really at a low moment, that's when you get strong because you're getting a new shell. That's when you get something from that that makes you even stronger and I love that analogy Integrated medicine might restore the soul to medicine, the soul being that part of us that is most important, but least easy to delineate. That's what you want to look like. And you can do it. She's 90 years old. This is a program I do at NYU once a month. I have a lecture series. You can see the topics up there, aspirin, inflammation, and it's free to the public. And I get people to come and speak, and I moderate it. Sometimes I speak about all the kind of questions you have. Should I take an aspirin, shouldn't I? What about inflammation? Update on new treatments for diabetes. So here's the information. No, oh, the next one is all about radiation. Is it safe? What's the story with phones and, and, and airplanes and how much radiation? And there's the, the information. If you want to come, you can come to me afterwards. I'll give it to you. You can follow us. There's the, the email, hearthealth at nyulangone.org if you want information about this and thank you very, very much for, uh, for coming and listening to me. I think we should, I don't know, do we have time or not? Yes. Uh, firstly, I hate to go over when people think they're gonna leave at eight. Anybody who wants to leave, please feel free. you got babysitters and other, rec- I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. If you wanna stay and ask a few questions, with pleasure. Susan, thank you for letting me stay and take some questions, yes. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the baby aspirin? Uh... Okay, it's a great question. What about baby aspirin? Because there was a time that we said everybody should take baby aspirin if you've got cardiovascular risk. And then a study came out very recently that said, what's the problem with aspirin? We all know that. There's increased risk of bleeding, especially gastric bleeding. The gastroenterologists like aspirin. It keeps them busy. And... What we found out is that when people are over the age of 70, they have a higher risk of bleeding than actually reducing the risk of heart attacks and strokes. And so we divide up the approach to aspirin therapy into primary and secondary prevention. Primary prevention – let me talk about that second. Secondary prevention is if you've had a heart attack or you've had a stroke there's an event, you've got an aneurysm, you've got blockages up here, you've had a TIA, you should be on the aspirin. doesn't matter how old you are. Because in that case, your risk is so high because you've already had an event that the aspirin risk is worth it. If you are taking aspirin just for prevention, you've never had one of these events, and you're over 70, we no longer recommend it. So primary prevention for aspirin over 70 On average, again, I said, you know, you've got to personalize it with your situation. On average, we don't recommend it. Who do I recommend it to if you're less than 70 and you've got a high-risk situation, which means you've got a calcium score that's very high, that means you've already got plaque. So in those patients where they're high-risk and they're less than 70, for even primary prevention, I will use it. Does that answer your question? Anybody else? Hello, Khazan, thank you for coming. Yes, my friend. Did I pay you for that question? I can't remember. <laughs> but he, I, I, I could have paid him to ask that question because I represent, I, I, I don't want to use the word casualty, but I represent part of the struggle for being an integrated physician where it takes time. And you know something really interesting, Dan? I just ran my genetics. And what's so crazy about genetics now, we're starting to find out all sorts of things, including your personality profile. And I've got, an, I've got a, a gene called OXTR, OXTR, it's actually an oxytocin receptor gene that apparently is found in people that are more likely to be compassionate and empathetic. Imagine one day they're screening medical students. So there's this gene that, de- that basically helps to tell you whether or not you're likely to be someone who's very empathetic, compassionate, and you like people around you and you like people. And then, unfortunately, I got another gene, COMT and TPH2, that tell you you don't handle stress well. So I should have got these genes before I went into cardiology, and maybe I would have chosen something different. But Orpheus asked me an amazing question, which is, how do you balance? How do you balance trying to be a functional integrative medicine physician with the time that you have to do it? And it's very difficult, and that's why there are casualties. And that's why most people practicing integrative functional medicine purely are out of institutions because there's just not enough time. And they're in concierge or fee-for-service practice because they cannot make money talking to somebody for 60 minutes and getting $49 or $89. So they charge the patient because they're not doing procedures. And that's where, unfortunately, that's where the money is in procedures and tests. So what I'm saying to you is it's a real dilemma and unfortunately functional medicine and integrative medicine is not accessible to everybody because it's expensive. But it's crucial and it is going to be the savior of American healthcare and so what I'm talking about and what Dan's talking about is what can you do just like me to help people be well and help them feel better and sit and talk to them about aligning their goals with their passions and about what their feelings are and say to somebody in a hospital bed you know what i haven't i don't know you for 10 minutes but i think you're amazing and i hope we can have a cup of tea when you get out of here i i'm still struggling people have come to me tonight i've got a lot of old patients here saying when you're coming back to practice i'd like to do that i mean it's is my goal it is my passion but my genes are saying to me i don't know if you can handle it That's great. So, what's your name? My name is so, what do people do? They go, is it a, they look it up? Is it a Google? You can Google it? Google parsley, health. parsley Health. Okay. So, <laughs> fantastic. Parsley, Parsley, Parsley Health. Evolution of Medicine. Okay. Thank you for that. Because although I say a tongue in cheek, I really hope there are enough people out there that there's enough of a groundswell that we can find a way to bring this to everybody and as many people who want it as possible. And I love the idea, I honestly do, that NYU, and I'm so proud of it, I'm in the prevention program and I know that when I'm sitting at meetings they're kind of proud to have me because I represent the other side and they go, we're so happy that we can embrace that. But when it's actually happening, and how many doctors can survive in the system when this is what you do? It's much more difficult. Yes, I'll take three more questions, and then we're going to call it a day. Suzanne, and I'm going to get to you later. or some other vehicle uh, that it's a great question we we got a problem people are taking drugs to sleep and the data is coming out now that when you take Ambien and you take these drugs chronically you're going to affect cognition what they do is they get you to sleep right, they help you to sleep but then you wake up They don't hold you. And if you try to take something that's long-acting, you're a zombie the next morning. It's really important to try to find out why are you not sleeping. There are sleep psychologists. There's one in New York called Dr. Ross Levin. Try to figure out how can you get to sleep. Make sure you don't have sleep apnea. Make sure you're switching the devices off. Make sure you don't have blue light. Make sure you're trying to go to sleep at the same time and try to get seven or eight hours sleep a night and try to wean off these, dru- these medications because there is no question they are harmful and we have a tragic situation because a lot of people are dependent on them. They think they can't sleep with them. I like melatonin. I'll tell you what my little cocktail is that I've had a lot of patient- success with my patients. One or two milligrams of melatonin and magnesium and I, there's one company that's got a magnesium powder, because I like it that it gets absorbed rapidly, so you take some melatonin and a magnesium which you take sort of like, a, like an effervescent, you take 200 milligrams and I've had some people and you take two or 300 milligrams of magnesium and it's been very very helpful. Great question, I am working on another book. Yes, thank you for coming, there's another two of my favourite patients. Okay, great question as well. So you know, there are some states where, uh, you know, cannabis is legal, and there are two components to cannabis. There's the CBD part of it, and then there's the um, what's the other name of the the stuff? THC. That's what gets in your brain, right? And that's the thing that affects your 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 mental status, and that's what becomes an addiction for people. So most people. Don't have access to that, although you can get it in a New York now for medical reasons. So the CBD oil now is hot, and every company and everybody's making it. And it's a bit like the supplement industry out there. I don't know what you're getting when you just pull it off the shelf. You've got to make sure that you're getting it from a reputable place. And I have heard stories of people who swear by it. So I am convinced that there are certain people chronic pain syndromes, anxiety, even depression that benefit and why not take that rather than analgesics and strong painkillers and certainly you know, if you can get yourself off you know, oxycodone and these kind of things. We need to be doing a lot more studies and trying to figure it out. It's big out there, the cannabinoid receptor system is a real entity, we don't know yet who is going to be a responder, and we need to be absolutely sure that you're getting it from a reputable nutraceutical company, and there are reputable nutraceutical companies. I Come to me, and I'll give you the names. You know, I don't like to stand on a platform, and this is going to go uh, onto a podcast, and then I'm going to get a phone call from five companies that I didn't mention. But I, I will tell you the ones that are making it. What you want from a reputable company is they can stand by it and say, That is the dose. That is the correct amount that we say when we say there's X milligrams, that's what's in there. And you know that it's pure. One more question. Yes, yes. Yeah. What's your opinion of low dose vitamin K2? 45 milligrams or whatever it is? So, by the way, I did write a book called Vitamin K2. And vitamin K2 is very, very helpful in making sure that calcium stays in your bones and doesn't deposit in your arteries. I'm a big believer that K2 is one of those things you should be taking and it helps. Very difficult to prove to reduce the risks of osteoporosis. Turns out that in Japan, because K2 comes from natto, and in Japan, where they have areas where they eat a lot of natto, they have less osteoporosis. There's somebody in New York who's making the natto she actually makes it from, from, from uh, p- fermented uh, soy, and it's called New York natto, and it's at Zabars and so and you need like one teaspoon and you're getting enough. You need 180 micrograms a day. I'm a fan of it. I think if you take a statin, or if you want to make, you know, try to help your bones, because really what it is is like an usher. It's making sure that calcium gets to the bones. And it stays out of the arteries. And so I'm a believer, again, we're talking now about something, you're not going to hear this in Western medicine. It's not ready for prime time in Western medicine. What, what I've, uh, you, if you take my book, in fact, come up here, I'm going to sign it over to you. I brought one copy, and you'll see many studies that show that you can actually reduce the progression of osteoporosis, osteopenia to osteoporosis. Last question, Elaine. So it's a great question. What do you do if you're looking for an integrative medicine physician? And it's not easy because when you do find them, sometimes you can't afford it. Well, you just heard from somebody who said that there's and also ABIHM is an American Board of, Integr- of, of Integrated Holistic Medicine. Dan, do you have? I want you to end with one line. Stand up and say hello. And what do you recommend? Where do people go? Dan has got a thing called the Javit Wellness Center, and he's trying to be a resource for people that are trying to find the right. St- I'll give you one minute, Dan, because they.
0: You, and more importantly, especially in this day and age, you're going to naturally need all the little micro addictions we have because we all have addictions, whether it's phone or social media or whether it's food or alcohol. So I would say find out what really starts to look inside. And so we talked about this in the park Sunday. It's so simple. We've got to go back the way we lived a hundred years ago. That's all we got to do. Get rid
1: of all the stuff we're doing and saying, yeah, a phone's a great idea. I use my phone, but go back the way it's we lived. We slept well. We ate well. You know, so much I'll much tell you, the we each other. music to my ears. How do we do that? Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. And Susan, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on 92nd Street Y and all of our programs, please visit us at 92y.org. This program is copyright 2019 by 92nd Street Y.